You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Are you a 3CR subscriber? We really need our listeners to subscribe to the station. It helps us remain financially independent and is an important part of our community governance. It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organisation and $300 solidarity. Become a 3CR subscriber today. 3CR Radical Radio. Heart is beating fast, and that's the rhythm I can dance to. I'm mighty glad I've got a chance to that one big heart that's beating fast. Tomorrow morning, let it rain. Tomorrow morning, let it pour. Tonight we're in the groove together. Ain't gonna worry about stormy weather. Gonna kick all trouble out the door. Beat out old trouble on drum. Beat out old trouble on drum. Beat out old trouble on drum. And kick all trouble out the door. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. And kick all trouble out the door. Kick him out the door. Kick him out the door. Okay, here we go. And we're all on air now. Welcome to Radical Australian Community Radio 3CR, streaming live, L-I-V-E, on 3cr.org.au. Kelly, I understand you've got to do something this year. What's that, Joe? Well, I've heard a rumour that you want me to strip down to my underpants and go swimming in the bay. Is this correct? What do you think, uh, Nick? Did I say anything about we that? We haven't introduced the guest yet. Never mind. He's not here. He is. No, no, come on, come on, come on. I don't want to see you in your... Neither do I. ...in your <laughs> underpants. I see myself in my underpants in the morning. It's disgusting. <laughs> do you remember that sculpture? Uh, I think Nico, I think Nico. Yeah, look, Nico, it's Nico Savidius. Nah, tell me what it is. How do you... Savidius. Sava. Savidius. But Cervantes for the, Anglo, <laughs> the Anglo-sized. Yeah, group. yeah, how about the Sicilians? Bugger okay. the Anglos. Savaitis. Savaitis. That's easy. I used to I used to pride myself. I had all these, it's phonetic. Yeah, I had all these yeah. Greek high school friends, you know, Papamiliados, Kindelidos, and I can't even pronounce Savaitis. Should I change it to Savage or something like that, which is a bit cooler, <laughs> Nick Savage? Yeah, has, has, has it got, has, has it got a, a, a meaning, Nick? I'm not aware of it. Okay, no. No, no, no. There was a river. There is a river in the, in Europe called the Savo River. So oh, yeah. I'm right. not sure where that might be named after that. Never, yeah, yeah. never knew. You notice how she got out of that questioning? The fact that she wanted to see me in the underpants well, in the saying, ocean. I was standing between the two of you and she did kind of... Why do, why do you keep going on about you and your underpants? I think you want it to happen. That's the thing. Oh, come on. At my age, all I want to do is sleep. Okay? <laughs> That's crap. That's so BS. Floating in the water would be a good I've got a big donut. I've got a big donut you can float around in. Yeah, she's moved. She's moved to the Mornington Peninsula. Ballerine. Okay. Okay. Ballerine. Ballerine. My apologies, and she thinks it's a wonderful place <laughs> it to is, be. It is. And she invited all these people at over New Year, and half of them were my friends. That <laughs> no, turned they up. weren't. <laughs> Most of them were. <laughs> we just pinch each other's friends for different things. Yeah, the trouble is when she pinches my friends, I don't have any left because I haven't got many. <laughs> now, Nico, this is all about you, not about us. Oh, I mean, it could have been inviting all your audience to come along to the... Uh, hey, hey, come on, come on, don't get carried away. You don't know who's listening to this program, Nico. Okay. You have no idea and maybe... <laughs> May not want to, because you know you're going to be podcast. I'm sure they're all decent human beings. I'm sure so. they really are oh, too. Oh, Nico, 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 Kelly. Okay, you're always the best in human beings. You're those yes, type of people. Absolutely. Oh, look, if you've got as many stalkers as I've got, you wouldn't. You wouldn't <laughs> say that. Now, Nico, where were you born? Uh, North. Uh, sorry, Carlton. I was actually born in Carlton. Carlton. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
Yeah. Carlton? Carlton. What, what yeah, year? My, what year? 58. 58. So, yeah, my uh, parents were kind of Greek migrants who came, dad came to Australia in 1953, mum came in 57. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I was born in um, 58. And, uh, mm. yeah, they were living in Station Street, Carlton, when I was God, the real estate there is worth a million, millions well, in, these in days. The, but in those days, it wasn't. No, it was, it was about actually, 10 grand. It was a slum yeah. where uh, the, yeah. the recently arrived migrants would yeah. actually stay and it's full of Italians and Greeks. Yeah. And, Does that um, make you a baby boomer or Gen X? No, baby, baby boomer. boomer yeah. He's a baby um, boomer. A late one. Yeah. No, yeah. no, no. I think no. it's a later. Nah, no, 58. He's, he's a baby. Baby boomers were the 40s, Joe, after no, the war. No, they weren't the 40s. They were, it took a few years to actually make them after the war. Anyway, right. we're talking about Carlton in those days. And <laughs> I remember my dad telling me when he yeah. first arrived in Carlton, mm, mm. there used to be rats running around the place. What's so wrong with that? Well, yeah, there was open sewers, and yeah, yeah it's not the Carlton yeah, at this day. Yeah. It was the old working class. There was boot makers, tanners, or, and, and you often had uh, families, you know, you know, two or three families living in one small household and one room sometimes. Yeah, well, yeah. So you said your parents came from Greece. Where they? Where did your dad come from? What was his name? Or what was your mum's name? So mum, mum's um, name is Athena, and uh, she mm. came from. They were both came from the same area, basically within about five kilometres of each other, and it's northern Greece. Um, right. But um, it's about an hour and a half inland from Thessaloniki, or about mm -hmm. half an hour south of the uh, northern Macedonian border. So I'm not sure whether you know much about Greek geography. Do you know Florida, Florida? Yeah, I mean, no, you're not talking to me. You're talking to okay, bi well, billions of people out well, there. Well, <laughs> yeah, half an hour from yeah. from the uh, northern Macedonian mm. border, so quite far north. It's uh, mm. it's the, probably the least attractive part of Greece. I mean, mm. Uh, mm. Uh, I was unfortunate that uh, my parents didn't come from a nice Greek island, mm. but uh, yeah. they they actually their families didn't originate from that area. They originated from the uh, Asia Minor, which is now called uh, Turkey. And, um, yeah, they were so came from when, the Black Sea. When, when did they come? So my grandparents left the, that, those, that area in the 1920s. Early they 1920s. left because they said, oh, we want to go and live in, you know, in Greece? Or the no, they left because they had to. It was basically leave what, what or, do you mean? Or, what do you leave mean? or you die. Um, there was massacres of Greece, Greeks, uh, people of Orthodox mm. living in that part of the world and yes. during the uh, late uh, 19, um, no, up to about 1920, 21. That's right. There were regular kind of massacres and uh, yeah, yeah. over, a, I mean, yeah, the, of the Greeks. I mean, the, the Armenian population suffered the same. So it wasn't just Greeks, it was Armenians yeah, and, right. and Greeks that's and right. Assyrians as well. That's right. And uh, it was ethnic cleansing and, yeah, they had to leave and, yeah, they were refugees when they arrived in, in Greece. And my grandmother was alive until the 1980s. Right. Did and she, she spoke, uh, she spoke, uh, broken Greek. Um, Turkish was actually her first language. Mm. And um, actually, so, so they'd, they'd lived there for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Well, at least hundreds of years. We don't know, yeah. thousands of years. And yeah. Uh, yeah, they they were kind of shocked that they had to leave because they didn't yeah. want to leave. I mean, they actually yeah. had Look, their farms they were established. I mean, right. And I managed to visit my grandmother's village many years ago. And uh, mm. yeah, it's, a, it's an attractive area. I mean, it wasn't very rich, but um, yeah, they lived in a mud brick home and uh, they had animals and so that home, that home was still there. The building was still there, yeah, and there wow. was a, a family moving in, living in there, and yeah, we were right. invited to come in and have a mm. look. And yeah. it's kind of a really good experience to visit your, your great grandfather's parents' yeah. home and uh, you know, visit the local cemetery. I mean, it was uh, pretty tragic. I mean, it's a nice place, and it was sad. I mean, the people who were there, it wasn't their fault. I mean, yeah. Actually, my mother, my grandmother spoke fondly of the Turkish population. Yeah. Uh, she couldn't, because the the killing them, the uh, the violence was actually created, of course, by people from outside the area. And, yeah. uh, well, and I got to meet some of the people who knew my grandmother, because my grandmother was in her 20s when she left that part mm, of the world, mm. and uh, they remembered her. So, right. uh, yeah. So what year was that? That I actually went to, yes. 1985. Was that the first time you've been back? The first time I went to that part yeah. of... Uh, the world. So, uh, do you, so do you go back to Greek often? Greece often? Um, probably every five years or so. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've still got family and friends there, so mm. yeah, mm. it's uh, there's still a connection. Um, right. But yeah, I was raised. I mean, my parents when I was born, we we lived in Carlton, but we we moved around. Um, I remember we've moved so many times as a kid. I mean, my f my parents, my family struggled financially when we were growing up. You know, they were factory workers. We. Um, 
you know, we moved from Carlton to Brunswick so, so, to, to Clifton Hill. So to, they were basically, they were basically cannon fodder, factory fodder. Yeah, well, that's what they came across after World War Two. Yeah, and, and um, yeah, they yeah. did the dirty jobs. So yeah, nobody else wanted to do. But yeah. um, I mean, we, you know, I lost count how many times I, I go around the city, uh, Melbourne, sometimes. I think, yeah, mm. we used to live there. I used to live there. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I think my kids get sick of me telling them how many places we've actually lived. But oh, well, you know what kids are like. Yeah. As a reality, that's how it was in those days. Yeah, mm. and then eventually we kind of moved to Thornbury and um, actually I visited our family home just uh, on the last weekend and uh, it's strange to see this home which I thought was actually quite large <laughs> it's actually really small it is and yeah. uh, I couldn't believe that we actually had three families living in the one house mm. at one stage in Thornbury and it was actually a three bedroom house yeah yeah well one bedroom for each family yeah, that's, that's the way it was that's how it was yeah. that's how it was now um if, you know, if you need to have a drink, have a drink. I, I can talk under wet concrete. Now, um, are your parents still alive? No, the mum passed away about three. Actually, she passed away during COVID. Um, right. But uh, dad passed away about 20 years ago. Right. And did you have any siblings? Yeah, I've got uh, a brother who lives in Greece and two sisters who live in Melbourne as well. And So, uh, so why did your brother go back to Greece for? Uh, my parents moved back to Greece in the uh, late, uh, early 1980s because right. uh, my my, my grandmother was still alive and was getting a bit old and she needed some family support. Mm -hmm. So my dad decided to take everyone except for me. <laughs> what did, you do? What did <laughs> you do? Well, at the time I was actually just about to start university right. and uh, thought it would be disrupting my education if I had to start mm. from scratch. So yeah. um, so the, yeah, they returned to Greece and uh, settled there and yeah, my brother met a, met a local and, and she his partner didn't want to come to Australia, so he was happy to so, stay there. So who do you think's made the right decision, you or your brother? Uh, no, I think I made the right decision staying because he struggled in right. Greece because Greek wasn't his first language. No. And um, you know, there's a lot, there's a thing called, in Greece there's a thing called meson, which means uh, in insider. So oh, right, if you yeah. want things done, you've got yeah. to have someone within the system, system to look after you. And, yeah, yeah. And we talk about corruption in Australia, yeah. but it's kind of it's pretty Endemic, insignificant yeah, to yeah. what happens in, yeah, in yeah. Greece. It's what, you, it's what you call the... And you have the thing called fucky lucky. I'm not sure you have you heard of fucky lucky? No. <laughs> it, it's not what it sounds like, <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's uh, an envelope. If you want something... Oh, yes, yes, uh, yes. envelope yes. is called fucky law. Yeah. So you put money in an envelope right. and hand it to your doctor that's or right. hand it to your that's local right. MP yeah. and you get things done. That's uh, called, uh, uh, called fucking lucky. Yeah, I was uh, in Greece in the early 80s for a period of time and it didn't take me long to understand how important the envelope was if you wanted to, the have, the if you wanted to do things with bureaucracy especially. Yeah, and also the people you know, yeah, yeah if you want things yeah. done. Yeah, so – and my brother really suffered – because of that, because he wasn't part of the system, right. so he's retired now. But you know, mm. have the opportunity again, he would have come back. Yeah. Right. What was high school like for a, a, a young wog? Um, I'll point out to you that we moved around a lot. So, <laughs> I mean, the first high school I went to was Northcote Boys High School, mm. and uh, during the nineteen uh, seventies, early nineteen seventies, Northcote Boys High had a reputation for being not only pretty rough, but the teachers were very political and. Uh, I was pretty sure it was the hub of uh, teacher activism in Australia. Mm. <laughs> I'm not sure. You you probably have a better yeah, it aware would of be, it. It would be, yeah. It would have been. And, yeah, uh, yeah the, there was arguments about how the education system could be, could be run and That's right. whether we should be focusing on phonics or yeah. whatever it was. And we were the meat and the sandwich between the right. different approaches. And uh, I think, you know, we kind of yeah, missed yeah. out on because of that. But, you know, the school, Northcote Boys High School, was an incredibly violent school. I mean, the amount of I mean, it w you'd be stressed going to school because there was kind of ethnic rivalry. But even amongst other kids, I mean, there was just violence generally. I mean, mm. and I often, and I can recall being spat on. wasn't sure whether it was because I was a wog or because I was just a, a smaller kid. I think because you were a smaller kid. Um, <laughs> a smaller wog. But there was... <laughs> Lots of fighting, and yeah, the teachers yeah. had no control no, over the kids. No. So how long did you... So I was there for about two years, and then... Uh, right. In about uh, 1972, my family moved to the Riverland in mm -hmm. South Australia. My right. dad, my dad, That's a big move. Yeah, Dad was sick of working in a factory. He'd been working at General Motors for more than 10 years. Mother mm. worked as, as a machinist in different clothing factories in Melbourne, as well as working from home. And I think they decided that uh, there must be a better way of making a living so 
we visited some family friends in the Riverland in South Australia who kind of sold the whole idea, you know, living on a farm mm-hmm. and enjoying better weather and yeah. more Waking out at four, yeah. Well, not about working out at four because we didn't, we didn't have any animals. Um, All right. But, um, yeah, we, we moved to the Riverland in the 1970s, so it was an interesting experience because uh, when I was growing up, you know, I saw how my parents struggled financially working in factories. And then in the early 1970s, we moved to the Riverland and started seeing the life of farmers in Australia. And it was no easier. It's actually quite hard to it's make a living hard. on a farm on a farm yes. as well. Um, around the same, with the time we got there, um, Australia joined, I'm um, sorry, the biggest customer for Australian fruit at the time was the was Britain. Britain. Mm. And um, soon after, my parents bought the farm because it was a big export to yep. the UK. Britain joined the EU, and that market just collapsed. Yep. So, my parents had gone there thinking it's, they're going to make a bit of money and you know easier lifestyle. In actual fact, it went the we were opposite. They really struggled financially, even harder than what they were in Melbourne because that export market kind of disappeared. Right. So, so uh, but where did know, you, where did you go to school in Riverland? A place called Glossop High School. And what was that like? Um, and luckily, at the time, there was there was a large ethnic population, and, uh, so I wasn't completely an, an outsider. Mm. Um, but um, yeah, you still had racism there, and it was yeah. not as violent. But uh, mm. no, even the teachers weren't really supportive. No. Um, but we, what it did mean is that the people I went to school with, we created an incredible strong bond, and you know, fifty years later, I'm still friends with the same people I went to school with. That, that's that's extraordinary, and that's because of what we went through together as kids because mm, mm. we had the same shit at home with our parents because our parents didn't understand the, the hassles we were experiencing at school and yeah, we were experiencing the kind of discrimination at school and mm, yeah mm. A, a leg a leg in each culture yeah, and yeah so yeah i suppose that's created that bit of bonding but uh i, I didn't you know i struggled at school i mean it wasn't so there was, there was nothing. There was nothing. I wasn't really interested in education. I was actually mm. more interested in having fun. And you know. oh, that's extraordinary! A young man <laughs> having interested in having fun. I think that's a universal issue. It was. <laughs> uh, however, um, I bombed out of year twelve. I was just telling your colleague Joe down the road, and uh, you know, I came back to Melbourne and uh, did tertiary orientation year at RMIT. Right. And that's when I, th- I started to learn. You know, and uh, I found teachers who had who had the time to spend with me. And, um, you know, I remember reading books that really kind of motivated me. And like T.O.P., what? was that called the T.O.P.? Tertiary Orientation Program, yeah. yeah. And um, I'm trying to think some of the books, but, you know, I remember the Steinbeck's uh, The Grapes of Wrath oh, yes. being on the syllabus and mm. it greatly mm. affected me because I actually, I mean, they were about farmers who were struggling and we were farmers who were struggling, right. so... Yeah. I knew that what they were talking about there, and Catcher in the Rye, and mm. yeah, these are all books that uh, influenced me. I think. So, 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 what university did you go to? RMIT. Well, it's, it was the tertiary orientation program. After that, after that, after that, I went to La Trobe University and yeah. did politics and media. Uh, excuse politics me, and history. excuse me, excuse me. You went to La Trobe and did politics. That's yeah. what everybody did in the eighties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not, not because. I was genuinely interested in, in politics. I just didn't know what else I was interested. In. I thought I'll I'll do something I'm interested in. I was actually interested in politics and history. All right. Um, but then the, I spent most of my time at La Trobe partying and uh, yeah, oh, being yeah. Act, involved in different activist groups. Like what? I was heavily involved with the. Um, I had some friends who were from Zimbabwe, from there was at the time it was Rhodesia. Yeah, yep, yep. And you know, we were spent a lot of time active um, campaigning to right. uh, for supporting the Zimbabwean kind of cause. Um, but in between partying, yeah, so. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, but, you know, Amnesty International, I was heavily involved with Amnesty at, uh, at La Trobe University as well. well. Well, why do you think you moved in that direction? Because you, your family... Oh, I mean, I've often thought about it because it, it impacts the work that I do these days. So, mm. I mean, I, I've always had a thing for the underdog. Mm. and uh, You think because you came from that... I have, but then my brothers and sisters who gone through the same thing don't have that same empathy for, right, right. Yeah. And, and my other relations yeah. kind of can't work out why I do what I do why I've been interested in it but I suppose I was a bit, bit I was sensitive actually I recall I mean I was sensitive as a kid I mean I was oh. I remember arguing for um, for women's rights when I was in high, in primary school sorry oh. primary school and uh, I'd have arguments with, with all the cousins about you know yeah. uh, the feminist movement mm. 
or the Vietnam War. I mean, yep. you know, yep. I remember arguing with my uh, anti-communist uh, relations Kings, about right. uh, you know, the Vietnam War. I'm thinking, you know, uh, why would a, a primary school? You know, I was actually in the older years, years six, five, and six, and, but I was remember being interested in it. And uh, you've just got it in you. No, Nick. no, no, no. What do you mean, no? No, it doesn't work that way. I know where Nick's coming from. It doesn't work that way. I should also way. point out that when yeah. I was in high school, we were living, yeah. when I mentioned that we lived in the Riverland in South Australia, um, the only TV station we got was the ABC. Yeah. So I was brought up on a diet of uh, yeah. Four Corners. Uh, That's I'm, right. I'm not sure whether it was called the 7.30 Report then. It was called yeah, it something. Was. Yeah. It, was, it wasn't called Today Tonight or something like that? Today Tonight, yeah. Yeah. It was all kind of... Yeah. Yeah, but your siblings away. were exposed to the same thing and they Yeah, didn't. they didn't watch those programs. Yeah. No, that's so the difference. So it's his personality. No, no, no. What, what no, is what then? No, no, no. What actually happens, there are things that influence you in life that push you in particular directions. And uh, I suppose because I, I was also the older one, older yeah. of the siblings, I saw my parents suffer a lot more than that's my right. younger siblings did. I mean, many of the guests we have have got the same story. Remember Percy? You know, he was nearly he's nearly a hundred and he came in and he and he and he came to that conclusion when he saw his parents struggle and how yeah. difficult things was. And we've got mm. many guests who have that same sensitivity, mm. but it's something that is as you said, you watched the ABC, they didn't. They were doing other things. So I can't say that was the only reason, but uh, no, 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 it contributed. It yeah. contributed. So you finished? Did you finish the uh, politics degree at Latrobe? No, I actually dropped out. <laughs> <laughs> Went and worked in the went and worked in the immigration department as a clerk for a couple of years, and then uh, what did, did your old man kind of shake his head? I, I was working for the government. He was happy. He was happy. Yeah. Yeah. It's a job it's for a life. Go, it's a government yeah. job. Yeah. I mean, when I was growing up, the the biggest dream my parents had for me was to work in the uh, in a government role or as a bank teller. That's what right. they kind of aspired for me to do. Right. Uh, so. Yeah, they were happy for me to, and I was actually looking after myself. I mean, I, you know, by that time they'd actually moved back to Greece, so mm. I was on my own. Um, but um, after two years of doing that, I went back to university. I actually enrolled at um, Melbourne State College and did a, a media's media course there, with the aim of becoming a media studies teacher. Mm, that, that's and strange. I was that, hang on, that's a little bit strange. Why would you go into Media studies. Just so I thought, yeah, actually, when I was at RMIT at the TOP, I actually got involved with uh, student radio. Ah. And uh, I was talking about this with Joe once again. But uh, look, it was called Three S. Don't mention Joe. Okay. Ed. He's going to be in the studio next week because okay, Kelly's yeah. going away, and I'm going to have to put up with him for an hour. So we don't mention that. Man. Anyway, I was, I was involved with student radio, <laughs> yeah. and uh, it got me interested. And I thought, okay, this might be an interesting kind of area. Mm. But then I started doing some photography and you know, learning how to do some Super 8 films. And right. I thought, okay, yeah, learning. I didn't have the talent or the discipline to uh, get into Swinburne University's uh, right. filmmaking course. Yep. So this was a secondary option. Yeah, Joe and M could have helped you there. I've mentioned his name. <laughs> but uh, I ended up uh, qualifying as a, a high school teacher, mm. majoring that, in media studies and politics. That's a bit of a worry, isn't it? You had all that unhelpful experience where the teacher said no control at Northcote Boys and now you're a high school teacher. How did you feel about going to your first uh, class? Pretty nerve-wracking. Um, you know, I ended up... I used to do teaching rounds and I remember sitting in a classroom getting ready to teach class. Kids and my neck was just frozen because I was so stressed out about the whole thing. Um, this is doing you know, when you're doing teach work experience as a teacher. Mm. Um, but uh, the first teaching role was at uh, Sananad High School in the country, and uh, yeah, it's, it was an interesting kind of experience. Uh, so you can say I enjoyed it. I mean, it, I got into teaching because I couldn't work out what else I wanted to do. It's not mm. because I had a real passion for education. So do you think do you think your experience at the uh, high school at Riverland kind of uh, helped you at St Arnold's? Well, I can see a lot of the same. Attitudes mm. in the Riverland were actually in country Victoria as yeah. well. So, yeah, the kids kind of, yeah, there was some of the kids had an issue with having an ethnic or walk yeah. teacher, and they kind of made it well known that it was an. But you know, once they get to know you, they kind of backed right. off, and you know, it was a good experience overall. And I, I liked living in the country at the time. Um, so, how long did you last? I was there a year, and then I mean, I've always had the travelling bug, so we ended up. Uh, with my girlfriend at the time moving to Japan and 
teaching English in Japan for a year. Yeah, that, that, that's, a, that's a lot of people do that. It's an yes. interesting, interesting experience. How did you feel about the... I love Japanese culture and mm. um, I could easily live in Japan and actually... So what, did you uh, live in a shoebox when you were there? No, we lived in a house. Oh, we lived in rural Japan. Oh, right. And, what, uh, on the west just, west coast? Or? In a place called Shikoku, which is, you know, well, I think it's on the east coast. East yeah, coast, right. East coast, yeah. It's mm. about five hours from Tokyo. Mm. Um, but it was considered rural. Um, but, you know, loved the Japanese people and lifestyle and uh, the food especially. And, um, yeah, stayed there for a year. They came back, went back to teaching, um, taught at a high school, at uh, Waverley High School as a media studies teacher. I replaced a teacher who had a nervous breakdown. Not unusual. It wasn't a good sign. No. Uh, but but, uh, but you've got the body build to keep them under control. Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> I learned how to kind of manage classrooms when I was at Santa Ana High School. Mm. Um, but um, I you know, taught for about four years, and then uh, I ended up with a young family. And uh, hang on, I hang on, hang on, hang on. Sorry. You ended up with a young family. What's going on here? Did you buy them on the internet? or oh, I didn't have the internet there. Did you go to the local market? Where did all this happen? Is, is, there, is there a Mrs. Nico? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got, <laughs> I've got a partner. And uh, by, the, uh, yeah, by this time, we were in our late 20s and uh, we decided to have children. Mm -hmm. And um, after teaching at high schools, in, in a high school at Waverley Secondary College, I applied for a job on a, northern, a, a remote Indigenous community in the Northern Territory. A uh, place called Ewan Demu, which is oh, yes, uh, yes. northwest of Alice Springs. Mm. And um, there's a bit of a nepotism involved because my uh, cousin's husband was actually the principal, head, the principal <laughs> of the school. And he, he actually didn't get the job for me, but he, he, he gave me a bit of support. And uh, mm. I was the adult educator. So, so what, you took you took your partner and your kids up there? Yeah, how, my old, son, how, how old were your kids? My, uh, son, my daughter was three years old. Right. My daughter was one year old. My, my son was one year old. Yeah, yeah. And did your young. parents think you'd lost your marbles? Well, by the time, my parents were still in Greece. So. Oh, no, in Greece. They didn't know what you were doing. man by this stage. No, no, no you, don't know, you don't know the Greeks and Italians, all right? It's actually, uh, <laughs> he's, he's right. You always get, but no, it's my in-laws who had my in-laws were the ones who thought I'd gone nuts. Lost them up. That's yeah, right. Yeah. You've you got to know the cultural background, Kelly, all right? Um, I mean, I know, but, I know a lot of things that he's experienced. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I was employed as an adult educator. It's basically to run literacy and numeracy programs on remote communities. Was there any, any culture shock? Uh, no, because we'd been there before on a holiday. Right. So I'd actually visited my cousin and her husband at Yundamu a couple of years beforehand, so we knew we were getting... So yeah, this so. this is the 1990s or the 2000s? Well, 1980s, we went there on a holiday, yeah. and then 1989, we moved there mm. as an adult education to run the adult education program up there. Uh, but when I got there, um, I was told not to rush into things, just to get to know the community before I started any kind of programs. And the feedback I got from people was they couldn't see the point of literacy and numeracy programs if there was no jobs in the community. Mm -hmm. So I spoke to my boss, who was my cousin's husband, and uh, we, I told him this was what I was told. And he goes, well, what can we do? What kind of jobs can we actually create and then run programs based around uh, literacy, you know, run literacy and numeracy programs based around the work that we're doing? And, uh, yeah, it was pretty interesting because we started with a community laundromat mm -hmm. and um, actually there was a when I soon after I arrived there we had a visit from a, 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 a federal politician Con Shaka oh yes good old Con he, he was a health minister and yeah. uh, I was given the job of taking him around the community and he said oh, what's something the community needs and I said, and I said well we need a community laundromat because the only people at the time who had washing machines in their homes were the white fellows like yeah. myself who yeah. were being paid by the education department yeah. and uh yeah he, he said look send me a proposal find out how much it would cost to actually do it and uh yeah we managed to get twenty thousand dollars out of con and we set up a community laundromat and uh we found a few people who were interested in running it on their own and i just ran some i did some basic bookkeeping classes with them and uh and that gave us the idea to run other businesses that was owned by the community 
for the community benefit. These days you call them social enterprises. Mm. In those days, I'd never heard that expression. But this was, ni- this was 1989. 1989. Yeah, we 30 first years. Look, it's uh, 4.30. This is Radical Australia on Community Radio 3CR. Kelly Whitworth is keeping us under control. Uh, the world's, sec- world's second greatest producer. What's all that wind? What... What are you doing there? Do you have wind? I have wind okay. in my ears. In my ears. <laughs> I'm glad you're on that it's, side of the desk. Pleasant, ple- pleasant wind. Pleasant like wind. Yeah. Yeah. Is there such a thing? Yes, there is. <laughs> From your underpants? It, 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 it depends, <laughs> depends what you eat. From Kelly. those underpants That's that right. you never wash. Exactly. I mean, a man has to keep his underpants <laughs> close to him. You never know what's going to happen. Now, poor old Nico... Savaitis is concerned about where this uh, little chat is going, but it's amazing, isn't it? Half an hour gone. It's been quick. Yeah, yeah. Been, yeah. yeah we're, we're at the beginning of your new life. Wonder how many hours we're going to talk for? Well, if you're really, what time int- do we have to be out of here? Uh, five o'clock. But if oh. you're really interesting, we'll, we'll bring you back. That's okay, what we cool. Do. That's right. Yeah, uh, but so when you went up there, you had no idea you were going to set up a community business. No, I'm. Uh, I'm I was told that I'd be have to be running literacy and numeracy programs, and, mm. uh, which was mm. fine by me. Uh, but yeah, there was obviously other needs there. I mean, we had we did everything from setting up a community laundromat to running drive education programs to setting up a slaughterhouse, uh, a screen printing business. Uh, but the biggest project I was involved in was setting up the Tanami Digital Network. What's that? It was a uh, when we were up there when we were first arrived there, the communication was pretty limited. There it was actually. Uh, we did have a telephone, but uh, there was no internet connection, and um, we we set up uh, a, a community-owned digital network where we set up uh, I've got the name Codec machines where the community could actually run its own network and bypass the Telstra system mm. to run their own phone system and introduce internet and other you know, digital communication and. Um, it wasn't my idea, it was actually my boss's idea um, because on the community, well, the first need was there was no secondary education on the on, at Yundamu. So if kids wanted a high school education, they'd go, they had to go into Alice Springs or up to Darwin. And um, we thought, you know, what if we could actually deliver high school classes into the community via the digital network? And, uh, yeah, we got four communities uh, involved in the network. Uh, you remember which, remember which ones they were? Oh, Unamu, Yulamu, uh, uh, Lajamanu, Papanya. I mean, yeah, there's, there's and how, how far distance between these communities? Uh, um, actually, Kintor was the furthest one, right. and that's near the Western Australian border, so that was about 1,200 kilometres away. So, so, so by just... 1,600 kilometres up to uh, yeah. Lajamanu. So by this innovation, which, you know, your boss got you to do, you're actually able to... Spread your wings all through North yeah, Australia. So you could you know, keep your teacher in Alice Springs or Darwin and deliver mm. the classes to kids in the remote communities. Mm. Um, but on top of that, I mean, around that same time, we had the Aboriginal deaths in custody yep. uh, hearings, yep. and uh, and one of the reason, one of the problems people in prison had was that the they were missing their families. Uh, you know, they you know, they were isolated. Mm-hmm. So you know what we set up was another program where. People, prisoners could go into these, the centre that we'd set up in Alice Springs or in, in Darwin and cu- connect with their families back on the communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we, it was actually quite a viable kind of business because we were charging government agencies to use the service. Right. It cost us about $2 million to set up and a million dollars of that came from the communities themselves. And then we borrowed a million dollars from the National Australia Bank to set it up. Right. And uh, it was an incredible project to be involved in. And, oh, it is. It's, it was and, and, and groundbreaking. I, men- I mentioned that media studies training I'd done. Yeah, that yeah. Oh, groundbreaking. Yeah. Groundbreaking. Groundbreaking. Because, you uh, know, we're not talking about 2024. We're talking about 1989. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's the beginning of the uh, digital age. I mean, there's, the codec machines were about a quarter of this room. Mm. And, um, and that's now on a laptop. So, yeah. 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 And, and what did the locals think about all this? Well, at the time, it was, it was quite exciting. Um, right. We were—I mean, we even had um, 
the art centres connected with art buyers in Europe and the United States. States. Uh-huh. So the amount of money the community was earning increased dramatically because yeah. they were able to negotiate directly with the galleries in Europe and uh-huh. the United States and sell. I mean, yeah, we remember connecting buyers in France with <laughs> an Aboriginal elder in, sitting on the ground in Yundamu. Right. Uh, it's, uh, yeah. So was it was this a federal or state? Who were you working for up there as a teacher? I was employed by the Northern Territory Open College of TAFE. Right, and did and that I was actually seconded by them to work on the on these projects. That's right, right. So um, there was there's no hassles with them. Uh, we had to be creative in the way we told them what we were doing. I mean, I couldn't have done it without my boss having that experience. He knew how to play the system. Mm. Uh, he was so good at it, he actually became a minister in the Northern Territory government. He knew how to stuff the envelope. There's a guy called uh, Peter Toyne who's right. most... Oh, yes, yes. I'm not sure you know Philip Toyne. Yeah. Philip Toyne used to be the head of the Australian Conservation That's Foundation. That's right, yeah, Philip. It's yeah. his brother. Right, yeah. And... Uh, no, most, most most inspiring human beings I've ever met. Mm, that's a, and how long did you last in, up there? Five years, six, six years. That's so. a long time. So the kids grew up. You got any, any more, more additions to the family? No, no, there? we only have had two children. By, the, yeah. by that time, the kids you know, were getting old and we really, you know, we had to get them into an English language kind of education kind of program and my in-laws were giving us a hard time about taking their grandkids away from them. That's right. So, yeah, we came back supposedly to... Um, run the family business. I mean, one of my... What, dark, what's, what's the family the business? The dark secret was I worked in real estate for my father-in-law, my father-in-law for quite oh, a few look, years. it's all right. It's all right. We all got to do a job. Yeah, yeah. Know. And actually, uh, we came back, and after about a year, two years, I decided real estate wasn't for me, so I went back to teaching high school. Well, hang on. What... I thought real estate was a dream job. What's what's the problem, mate? It was the week- S- selling it was, houses to losers. It was the weekend. The weekend work. I didn't oh, like, the weekend work. I didn't like working on weekends. All oh, right. Uh, but I, did you do any auctions? No, I didn't. I was I wasn't a qualified auctioneer. But oh, right. My father-in-law right. was. Yeah. Uh, but um, did that for two years and then decided to go back to teaching. But I managed to get back. Into, I didn't actually. I never resigned from the Victorian Education Department. I was actually on leave, right. so I was able to return there. But I got seriously depressed when I went back. I just couldn't handle being in front of a classroom after doing what I had Didn't done. And um, I started looking at what I, I could do. This is, by the, this is the late 1990s now. Mm. And I um, started hearing about fair trade. I mean, yeah, I'm not sure whether you're familiar with the fair trade. Fair movement. trade. Fair trade. Fair trade coffee, fair trade chocolate. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, tell us about it. Well, I remember hearing about it was mm. happening in Europe. Mm. And, uh, you know, from what I remember, Hearing about the history of fair trade, was, uh, there was a priest working in Mexico during the 1930s and 1940s, and uh, he thought it'd be a good idea to raise some money for some farmers to set up some water wells there. And they said, look, rather than charity, why don't you just find someone to pay us a proper price for our coffee beans? Right, right. And uh, he found some people in Europe prepared to, to buy coffee at a, at a better price. And then that's how the fair trades kind of label movement kind of started. Um, so but it wasn't introduced into Australia until the uh, late 1990s, actually, no, early 2000s. So, so what, were you involved in the introduction, were you? So I became a member of the Fair Trade Association of Australia, which was not the label. It was mm-hmm. just a group of business people who were interested in fair trade. And uh, and we wanted to create some income for the, for the movement so we can actually promote the the fair trade movement and we so we introduced the fair trade label into Australia which by that time had already been operating in Europe for about 10 years right well, what what did that entail the the label no Just, having, having to introduce the label did you have to obviously yeah, we had a negotiate board. Yeah, we yeah. had a set up a board and right. the, you know the board couldn't be member there's no no business owners could be members of the board it actually was basically involved we had people from Oxfam but it was right. actually NGOs who were running the board initially right um, and so the Europeans were quite happy to for it to spread to Australia. Yeah, yeah they were quite keen. I mean, yeah. there was, it has to be an international kind of movement. Yes. Mm. And um, but when people think of fair trade, they think of coffee and chocolate. Yep. So I was never interested in that. I was always interested in. Hang on, hang on, hang on, Nico. You look like a man who's interested in coffee. Looking at your uh, size, you look like a man who should be interested in coffee and chocolate. You know, you should be interested in coffee and chocolate. So, well, as a consumer, as a consumer, yes, but not as a, a business operator. It's yeah. not the type of thing that you'd uh, be involved. No, in. I was always uh, interested in the uh, the f- impact of fashion and um, 
sports goods. Uh, hang on, hang on. Always interested. Where did that come from? Fashion, okay, no, no, fashion. Yeah, yeah, fashion. Okay. So growing up, my parents worked in factories in Melbourne. My mother worked in quite a few clothing factories, but she also worked as a home worker. So mm-hmm. we were living in North yep. Thornbury when I was growing up. And in our lounge room, we, we had a black and white TV, but we were, next to the black and white TV, we had a Singer sewing machine, right. which my dad had managed to put a little motor on. And then um, next to that, there was a big pile of fabric, uh, which would come in every uh, week or so. And my mother would spend each, any time she, any free time between raising four kids, yep. sewing garments for fashion brands in Melbourne, big and small. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them was a brand called the House of Maryvale and Mr. John. I'm not sure whether we're the same vintage or similar vintage. No, no, I'm a bit older, I'm okay. afraid. The House of Maryvale and Mr. John used to be a, a retailer on Collins Street, and mm. it was the, the go to place during the late 60s, early oh, 70s. Yep. And I remember as a young kid i was about 11 years of age winning i went into that store with an older cousin of mine who was quite into fashion and we saw some of the clothing that my mum had sewn being mm-hmm. sold there mm-hmm. and uh, the garments were being sold for between 30 and 50 dollars this is and, and your mum was getting 50 cents it's so yeah. about 15 to 30 cents yeah for the saying and i <laughs> as an 11 year old and i couldn't work out <laughs> How, how, how does that work? Why? Because we were struggling financially when I was growing up. No wonder up. you've taken on this path in life. Now we're beginning to understand why you've got this feeling for the underdog. Yeah, you were the underdog. Well, Your my, parents my, were the my underdog. My parents were both underdogs. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so it was always in the back of my mind. And um, I remember when I was in high school, we used to have visits by Communiate Abroad. Yes, yes, yes. Which is the precursor for Oxfam. Mm. And uh, this is when I was in South Australia in the Riverland. Mm. And uh, they talked about the exploitation of workers in developing countries. So, so. You can't hear that? Yeah, we can. We can hear it. Yeah. Look, kill it and I'll, and I'll kill okay. some time. Um, <laughs> just kill it. Kill it. You know, I'm sure. Nick's just uh, turning his phone off. Yeah, just sorry. That's all right. I turned the volume in. I didn't actually yeah. turn it off. Yeah. No, that's. Kelly, you have. Not done your job. Sorry, sorry. I she told, did, she told, I told Nick when he came turn the in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, turn it down, not turn it off. I said it's turn okay, it off. It's okay. Oh, anyway, sorry, it's Kelly. It's all right. I take, full, I take full responsibility. No, me. no, we won't have an argument. Okay, that's okay, what cool. this is about. Yes, we Let's move on. Argue with all right, all right. So, what was the question again? Yeah. But, well, uh, we know where, you, where it all came from, you know, 50 cents, $30. And so, fair trade, you've always been interested in fashion and sport. Yeah, well, I was quite into sport when mm. I was in. I mean, I love soccer, and uh, yep. I remember when I was at university. You know, you can call it football now. Yeah, well, okay. <laughs> but when I was at Latrobe University, I remember seeing. <clears throat> I was quite into the Nike brand when I was growing up because mm. I always saw them as the outsiders. That uh, Ox, um, Adidas, and uh, Puma were the establishment, and right. Nike were coming in and yeah. really stirring things up and. Yeah. I thought they were the kind of cool brand until I saw a, a magazine cover. I think it was actually New Internationalist. Yes. And it was a child uh, sewing a Nike soccer ball, yeah, football. Yeah. I thought, you fuckers. Yeah, uh, yeah you would so, have yeah, yeah. automatically thought of your mum. Same well, thing. Uh, I just thought explain yeah. what are you, you know, doing using kids to, yeah. to do this. So yeah. I used to go into shops, into retailers, and ask them if they could show me some some sport, a, a soccer ball or yeah. shoes that were not made by a child labour or a sweatshop labour. Ooh, you would have been very welcome. Yeah, well, mo- a lot of retail, I mean, the staff, most of the staff had no idea where the no. products were coming. And sometimes if I managed to speak to a manager, they would get shitty with me for asking that. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And ask me, how do you expect us to know? Or, yeah, why, why would we do that? Yeah. yeah. But so much to my parents, dis- actually, my parents were overseas at the time, but... I spent most of my time at university wearing secondhand clothing mm. um, and buying just secondhand stuff. And if my parents knew it, actually, they did find out and they got really upset with me. Uh, I told I you, actually, Kelly, this is the Greek and Italian way. Because yeah, they were brought up, yeah. they were brought up wearing secondhand clothing. Yeah. So the last thing they, they wanted to do was. They couldn't understand why you'd be wearing. Rags. Yeah, by yeah, choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, by choice. La bella figura. Is what the does that mean again? La bella figura. That means the beautiful what? The figura. beautiful presentation you make uh, to the public. That's all that counts. You've got to 
have the bella figura. That's why they do good. that. Those strolls in the, That's in the right. dusk. What's it called? Those strolls they take in the town. Oh, the promenade. Yeah, yeah. they wear their. Yeah, they best. do that in Greece too. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. the best. bella figura. It's a Southern European disease because oh, it's warm. Because it's warm. <laughs> Nor they do but it. It's though. a chance to check each other out, isn't it's it? From like, recording. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So let's get back. So you're hassling these poor workers in the stores about. Yeah, where were this stuff? Well, come on, you're asking. Come they, on, you're asking. A few of them. So where did all this lead to? Nothing. I mean, I just basically hassling. Just you know, I was aware of it, and yeah. you know, I'd ask the kind of questions, but I didn't do anything about it. Um, but um, then switched to years later, working on remote indigenous communities. Um, you went back to indigenous communities. No, I'm I'm jumping back right. there now because yeah, right. we were talking about this was happening when I was at university. Yep. Yep. But, you know, when I, what do you do? I was aware of it when I was in high school. What do you do it as a high school student? You mm. Just be aware of it. Um, when you're university, you're aware of it, but you don't have money, anything to do with it. You can't really do much about it. No. Um, but when I did start working at Yundamu, um, one of the businesses we set up was uh, Urumpi Crafts, which was basically taking traditional designs and printing them onto T-shirts and fabrics. Now, at the time, uh, you couldn't go into a shop in Alice Springs to buy a, a T-shirt with an Aboriginal design, which was actually printed by an Aboriginal person. And often the case, it wasn't even printed, it wasn't even designed by an Aboriginal person. Um, there was a lot of kind of false marketing, fake, being done, yeah. fake Aboriginal art kind of stuff. So mm. we thought, why don't we do something genuinely on the community? So, yeah. I found a source of Australian-made T-shirts, and we would bring them into the community and find. That. So, with at Yundamu, you had an, a, a handful of artists who were making quite good money. Uh, these are the ones who are selling their artwork internationally. But you also had a second level of artists who were good artists, but they didn't have the name recognition these other ones had. But they still need to earn some money. So we work with them to take some of their design to print them onto T-shirts and get them to earn some income as well. Mm. And yeah, we were selling the T-shirts in Alice Springs and actually on the community primarily, initially, and then in Alice Springs. But then we also started selling it Australia-wide through Oxfam. And uh, yeah, we sold thousands of T-shirts mm. uh, through mm. Oxfam around Australia. And I found that quite interesting. And I, I, as a, and I could see the impact I mean, it was a genuine social enterprise. It was actually wholly owned by the community. Yes. And all the profits would stay on the community. And it was, you know, it was creating some purpose. You know, gave, it gave people some existence, a reason to get up and do something, yeah. Mm. Mm. Um, so when we came back to Melbourne, and I mentioned back to, I went back to, I worked at real estate, got sick of that, went back to teaching, got depressed. And I thought, you know, why not work in this kind of fashion, kind of space for good and knowing what I knew about my mother's experience, knowing what I'd seen at Yundamu using traditional designs onto T-shirts, etc. And I thought, yeah, when I set up my own kind of brand. Um, but um, I started off with sports balls um, because at the first non-food products in the world to be certified fair trade were sports balls. It went from coffee, tea to sports balls. So, you know, I introduced the Edico brand. Actually... <laughs> Because we're talking about many years now. Yes, yes, yes. So before I started my own business, I introduced No Sweat, the world's first ethical shoe on the market. Good, right. So actually, okay, okay. sorry, I'm, you're really stretching my memory here. You're familiar with Adbusters, the left-wing publication? Yep, yep, so yep. I've been a life, I've been reading it for many years. Mm -hmm. And during the uh, 1990s, they talked about uh, the evils of the big sports brands. Yep. But they argued that nothing's going to change unless consumers change, and consumers are still going to want to buy shoes and yep. T-shirts and things like that. So why don't we create an ethical alternative? So they developed a brand called Black Spot. I'm not sure whether you're familiar with it. No. Black Spot sneaker. No. And I thought, brilliant idea, totally logical. I mean, mm -hmm. People are going to buy something. Might as well just buy something which is genuinely ethically made. Mm -hmm. So I reached out to them and I said, look, I don't have any experience in the fashion industry, apart from my mother working in the industry I was growing <laughs> up, and what I did on a remote Aboriginal community. Um, but I've got an interest in this kind of space. Mm -hmm. And they said, yeah, we'll work with you. And uh, I waited three months, nothing happened. Six months, nothing happened. And then I kind of did a bit of research about who they were working with and they working with a guy called Jeff Ballinger. 
is an American academic who was heavily involved in the anti-sweatshop movement. Mm. He's actually often seen as the godfather of the anti-sweatshop movement. He was going into factories in Indonesia and reporting on what the big sports brands were doing. Mm. He's the one who exposed Nike and Adidas. Yep. Yep. Um, was a, there was a famous article which appeared in Harper's Bazaar, one of those mm. magazines, mm. which you know, took the photos and hit the shit hit the fan. And he was involved with the ad busters. And I, so I reached out to him and I said, I've been waiting for months what's actually happening. And he said, oh, we've got a, a disagreement with the ad busters people about where we should actually set up our first factory. They want to do it in, in Portugal mm -hmm. where there's a good strong union movement and there are good factories there. Uh, but Jeff wanted to do something in Asia because that's where sweatshops were really oh, yeah. happening. Yeah. yeah. And I said, yeah, it makes sense to me. I'd rather do it in Asia as well. Plus, it's closer to Australia, so we, uh, yeah, we, can, we can keep a closer eye on it. So, um, yeah, he then went on to develop a brand called No Sweat with a group of union activists in North America. There's about 11 shareholders in the kind of, they're all act, um, worker, mm. act, worker rights activists. Yep. And, uh, yeah, they gave me the distribution rights for Australia. This is 2003. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it, I was I couldn't believe it. the first place I exhibited the shoes was the trades hall. Yep. I set up a, I set up a display there. There was some union event that I was asked to set up. I was invited to, hmm. and uh, we got a great response. I sold thirteen thousand pairs of sneakers over a two three year period, hmm. just through word of mouth, through through word of mouth, and uh, yeah, a very prim very basic website, hmm. and. Um, but after about two, three years, the, the, the 11 shareholders basically started having different opinions about how the way the business should operate. I was also having to develop my own marketing material, and I thought, you know, why am I having to develop my own marketing or pay these guys to look after the supply chain? I want to just do it myself. Mm -hmm. And around 2003, 2004, I started getting involved with the fair trade movement. And uh, when fair trade sports balls became available as a fair trade certified product, I thought, yeah, okay, well, that's the direction I'll start off with. So I introduced the Etico brand. Etico is the business I run now. Right. And that's what I've been doing since for the past 16 years. Mm. Um, Etico, I think you've got a pretty good grasp of the Greek language, means... No idea. Ethical. Oh, ethical. Oh, God. So Etico is from... The brand is actually derived from the Greek word meaning ethical. 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 I yeah. think in Italian it's eth etica. Ethica. Ethica, yeah. 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 So it's the same meaning. And, uh, yeah, Etico Sports Balls were the first non-food products on the market to be certified fair trade. So why do you ask why is fair trade sports balls important? Well, because during the uh, 80s, there was a high incident of child labour in the sports ball mm. industry. You know, right. young 12-year-old kids stitching soccer balls, football ball, for major brands around the world. It was all pretty well documented. It was no yes, great secret. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, this is an alternative. Um, but, you know, I bootstrapped Etico from day one and uh, after a couple of years we were talking to the factory about what else they could do because I thought if you can stitch a sports ball, why can't you stitch a, a sneaker? Yeah. And so, they, yeah, well, they invested some money in some technology, some equipment to set up their own factory production and making footwear. So, yeah, we expanded into footwear and then expanded into clothing as well. So Etico, yeah, is start off as a sports brand but now is a fashion brand so we do we sell etico sneakers etico t-shirts etico hoodies but they're it's a fashion brand for people who give a shit about their fellow human beings the environment and mm. animals so how, how do people actually confirm what you're saying when they buy yeah, well, a product. I told people, look, if anyone tells you they're mm. ethical or mm. they're this or they're that, ask Because as you know, there's, there's these green wash. There's ethical washing, yeah. yeah. So we're certified fair trade, so it's actually hard to get fair trade certification mm -hmm. and it's harder to keep it. Yes. So we're continuously being audited or monitored. Mm -hmm. Right. And it, uh, it, on top of that, we've yeah. had, I mean, I do my own visits, but I don't place much value on that. Mm. But we've had visits, from, um, Oxfam have, have visited the factory uh, mm. a couple so, of times. So where's the factory? Well, we work with a shoe factory in Pakistan and right. a clothing factory in Calcutta in right. India. Right. And um, yeah, various NGOs have visited both of them, but the, the fair trade label kind of 
monitors both of those factories. And, and how about distribution? How do you resolve that issue? Because obviously a lot of distribution, I hate to use the tautology, is stitched up, you know, by corporations. Well, luckily there's this thing called the internet. Ah. Where, you, where you can <laughs> Never heard of it. Never where, heard of it. Where you can, you've been able to bypass this. And we've, we've actually had a lot of retailers tell us they feel uncomfortable with what we do, mm. that it raises too many questions about other brands in their stores. Right. And... Um, you know, we've got a pretty strong following amongst conscious and conscientious consumers, and we've got about twenty-seven thousand people who get our, who are on our newsletter database, and about mm. eleven thousand of them actively engage with the brand. Mm. So we're we're a sustainable business without re- relying on the system to. So re- what's what's your role? Um, your co- coordination. Basically or? everything except everything. for. I mean, there's a. I've got someone looking after digital marketing for me and right. another person looking after fulfillment. Um, but I've tried to keep our products affordable so we don't have a very big team. Mm-hmm. So it means working long hours. And, right. Uh, yeah. right. Is, is it satisfying? It's, um, there are times where it's satisfying. More often than not these days, it's just overwhelming. Why is um, that? Um, we've always been under-resourced. I mean... I mean, we've created the most ethical fashion brand in Australia, and I'd welcome anyone to kind of challenge me on that kind of claim. Was, um, but we've never had the resources to do it properly. So you can't yeah. go to a bank and say, "Give us a million dollars." Doesn't work. That they, they won't. They won't lend. No, no, well, they don't. They, so they'll lend you if you put up your home as security. Yeah, yeah but yeah. they're not going to do it. Yeah. Um, but also, I find that for a lot of co- cooperatives and collectives. And I thought things. the hard thing mm. when I started was going to be developing the supply chain, mm. but the hardest part has actually been getting individuals and organizations to actually shop their values so if you ask most of your friends do they oppose the use of child labor sweatshop and slave labor they're all going to say yes they do the question is what do they do when they go shopping do they bother asking do they bother looking into the product that they're actually about to buy to just see mm. how you know how they, those products are actually well they get seduced by the five dollar t-shirt yeah. by the five dollar t-shirt by the branding or the, mm. the great ads that are on the TV or in the magazine. Mm. Um, and it's, um, you know, I don't have a problem with individuals doing that because you know, people have limited budgets. Or not mm. everyone, but there's a few people with limited budgets and other but you're, distractions. But you're, you're supplying a quality product, which is durable, isn't it? It's going to outlast any of that stuff. Well, firstly, what we do is we make sure that the work, sorry, the farmers who supply the raw materials are getting paid a fair price. Mm. So that's certified fair trade. So mm-hmm. we can actually track as far back as where our cotton seed comes from to right. make sure that the farmers get paid a fair price for their cotton. Right. Uh, we make sure that the people who work in the factories are paid a living wage as opposed to the minimum wage. Mm-hmm. So in countries like Bangladesh, the, the difference between the minimum wage and the living wage is about four times the difference. Right. In India, where we work primarily, it's basically double. It's 100% more. So we make sure that the workers are being paid a living wage. So as a result, we're the only fashion brand in Australia to ever win the Australian Human Rights Award. So back in 2016, we actually were given the Australian Human Rights Award. Mm. Um, the Australian Ethical Fashion Report, I'm not sure whether you're familiar with it, but Baptist World Aid puts out that report every year. Mm. And between 2013 and 2021, when we participated, we were the only brand to get an A-plus for ethical production every single year. Mm. We boycotted the rep- we boycotted the report since then because we don't think it was strong and uh, strict enough. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, as far as setting the standard for ethical production, I don't know anyone who's doing it at the level that we are. So, if if people want to follow this up, this conversation up, uh, are there any websites or yeah? Well, like it's our website's the main source of traffic to our mm. men. So it's. Etico, E-T-I-K-O.com.au. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've got our social media kind of presence as well, but uh, I welcome any communication so from people. But basically... E-T-I-K-O. Yeah, Etico, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but um, a large part of our work also involves helping organisations to shop their values. And, you know, it's amazing by how many groups are out there working in this sustainability social impact space who don't actually apply to their own procurement policies right. <laughs> um, yeah. I was actually giving a presentation a few years ago to probably the most left-wing political group in Australia mm. I'm not sure whether we can mention who they are I don't worry don't worry but what, what, what happened but uh, they asked me to talk about my work with worker cooperatives because yes one thing I've actually done is work with worker cooperatives in South America in right. Argentina yep 
and uh, you know, I showed them some videos and uh, talked about how we're supporting them and they said, yeah, fantastic, you know, this is what we want to see. But then I looked at all their merchandise that they were selling. Mm. It was all sweatshop made. Yeah. And yeah. I said, do you see the disconnection between what you guys are advocating for and what you're actually doing when it comes to buying? And they said, look, we've got a budget and we, don't want to, we can't spend money. <laughs> I said, well, you wouldn't accept that one. You wouldn't accept some excuse like that from no. some big corporate. No. So why do you do it? Exactly. Yeah. All right. And that's the biggest challenge we've got is the, you know, getting people to st- stop talking about sustainable and social impact and, and do something. Do something about it. All yeah. right. Nico, the time is up. So, yes, that's right. It's amazing. Nico Savaidis, congratulations. All the best to your long suffering family because they're the ones who usually suffer when people go work outside the box. And congratulations on tearing up all those envelopes in your life. Cool. I appreciate the time, Joe and yeah, Kelly. Thank you're a yeah. bit of a legend. Thanks for coming on well, our no, show. Well, no, no, you're not a bit of a legend. You are. Definitely. There. Thank you, Kelly. We only oh, have legends yeah, on well, Radical well, Australia. Every week. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. We know you love listening to 3CR, but we also know that many of you haven't downloaded the Community Radio Plus app yet. The app lets you tune in anywhere and share the station with your friends. So, show the love and share the love and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.